I, I had someone pitch me once and he literally said, um, Steve Jobs was not only a business genius, but he was a design genius. And I can think of no one in Silicon Valley other than myself who meets those same criteria. <laughs> everybody and welcome to conversations with bacon it's great to have you here i hope you're all safe and well wherever you may be before we go on of course check out my new book it's called people powered how communities can supercharge your business brand and teams available in all good and probably some bad bookshops as well so uh i'm really thrilled to bring on david hornick how are you doing david i'm doing great i mean as well as one can do during a global pandemic but <laughs> <laughs> exactly all right, so uh, we've got I've got a lot I want to get into uh, today with you, but let's first of all go through the rap sheet. So you are a, a general partner at uh, at August Capital, um, and I know August are, are pretty well known in the in the certainly in Silicon Valley and certainly in the investment space. Uh, you are a, a Harvard Law School lecturer. You teach a course called Entrepreneurship and Company Creation. You're also a lecturer on law at Harvard as well. You're a board member of a whole bunch of different companies: GitLab, Fastly. Bill.com, ShopRunner, Second Spectrum, Brilliant, Mastrop, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and of course, you know, it would be remiss if we didn't talk about that you're the executive producer of, of the Lobby Conference. This is an event that I've been to, I think, three times now. And it's, it's just an awesome event, which I definitely want to get into a little bit later on. So I think you've obviously got a ton of experience um, in, in, in a wide variety of areas. And I just want to start with the elephant in the room, which is obviously COVID-19. Uh, this has had a huge impact on on everybody. But what have you seen primarily from the fundraising space and from the venture space that has been the real impact of COVID? Are people are, are people investing in companies? Are companies looking for investment? Has, has there been much of a change? Well, I, I will say that when it hit, when it became clear that this was not a passing thing, <laughs> you know, there were those <laughs> who, oh, uh, yeah, well, we'll sit here for a couple of weeks and it's good. Uh, and when it became obvious that that was not, in fact, what was going on, then um, then we all focused on, okay, let's look at our portfolio companies. Let's see how people are doing. Let's understand uh, who's going to run out of money because the venture business is sort of an interesting thing. It, it, you, you fund these little companies. They're all pretty precarious in the grand scheme of things. And the the only thing that's really fatal is if you run out of money. You could you could have all sorts of other things go wrong, but when you run out of money, you're literally out of business. And so, uh, so for for several weeks, all that we did within August Capital, the partners at August, and I'm sure this was happening across all venture funds, we all just said, let's look at our companies, let's meet with the the CEOs, let's see how we can be helpful. And see who has enough capital to ride out what is likely at the time. I think we were saying, look, yeah, let's assume we, we're here for 12 months. Uh, and then quickly we sort of moved to, well, maybe 12 to 18 months, which frankly, you should always kind of be looking forward 12 to 18 months anyway. Um, and that was an interesting exploration. And for most of our companies, we quickly got to a set of circumstances that would give them enough capital uh, to have 18 months worth of runway and think. And sometimes that meant laying some people off. Sometimes that meant 
raising some money internally. The government here in the U.S. had some, uh, you know, some uh, loans that helped some companies, etc. Um, and now we're kind of back to you know business as usual. And the question is, what is business as usual? And it and I would say that venture investors are investing. They're still meeting with companies. They're still looking at companies. But I, I think it's much easier to get funded as a new company than an existing company. If you're out raising a Series B or a Series C, boy, it's going to be hard. It's just a hard thing because so much of it is about predicting what the future has. And there's, you know, what what is demand and what does the economy look like, et cetera. And that's just very unclear at the moment. Now, it's interesting you mentioned about kind of um, runway, because uh, a little while ago, Rahul Vora, who is the CEO of Superhuman, um, he came on uh, on this podcast a little while back. And one of the things he was talking about, this is around the beginning of COVID hitting, and he wrote this piece for, on Medium about um, uh, kind of the optimal strategy is choosing how much runway you want, whether it's 24, 36, 48 months, adjusting your burn rate so that your runway is always at that level, and then reducing net burn through revenue growth and cost reduction. What What's your kind of take on that? Because when he's talking about how much runway, I mean, 48 months of runway is a lot, a lot of runway, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are lots of, there, there are lots of theories. I was just, I was just talking to an entrepreneur who's raising capital and, and, you know, I said, look, we've, and, and these entrepreneurs actually had been attorneys for a long time. So they've, they've represented tons of companies who've gone through this process. And, uh, and I said to them, look at, there's this theoretical fundraising process where you raise just enough money so that when you run out of that money, you're in the perfect position to raise the next amount of money at just the right price, Hmm. you know, (laughs) and then there's the reality, which is that never happens. That's not a thing. It turns out either you are doing great and you can raise just way more money than you'll ever need. You know, Rahul is an awesome guy. Um, He just raised a bunch of money. And why? Because he's doing fantastically. The company's growing quickly. And so, you know, I don't know that he chose to have a ton of capital in the bank or rather he did ultimately have the capacity to choose that. Whereas most individuals sitting there saying, I'd like to have as much money as Rahul has in his, in his bank account, the investor community said, so what? Like, (laughs) yeah, we all would love that, but we're not giving it to you. Right. So, um, so it's not as easy as I want this much money. It's the, it's going to be the thing that, that, um, you know, that gets me through it. I, I, I had a conversation with one of my, one of the entrepreneurs I backed, uh, who very, you know, early stage company, but I, I gave them actually a lot of money and they've been doing very nicely. And when we were looking at the impact of COVID and the possibility of pl- applying for one of these federal loans, I said to this entrepreneur, well, how much runway do you have? If we make no rev- revenue going forward, how much runway do you have? And he said, well, likely six and a half years. <laughs> what? <laughs> Holy moly. And I said, yeah, so you're fine. Like that, you know, you're fine. You really don't need a loan. Uh, now, of course, that's at his current burn, which means he, right. there are, are fewer people than the company will have because as it continues to do well, then we will end up 
hiring more people and the burn will go up, but maybe revenue follows. And so anyway, all of this is to say that it is so incredibly varied. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, are you are you also seeing a change with the companies that you're working with in in how they're spending their their cash? Because I, I would imagine, I mean, we've obviously seen uh, changes in terms of people have been moving their, their uh, in-office uh, workers to be working remotely, and that opens up a whole kettle of fish in terms of, well, just many different areas. But from a, from a financial perspective, they're maintaining these offices, and they've still got to have security at these offices in many cases. But more broadly, have you seen much of a change there? I mean, the one you point to is the very clearest, which is there isn't any question that uh, companies are reconsidering what kind of office footprint they need. It's, you know, I sit on the board of GitLab and GitLab from day one has been a fully distributed company. They've never had an office. They've never had any capital expenditures. Uh, there are now more than 1,500 people in 65 countries. Yeah. And for people, by the way, who <clears throat> who are unfamiliar with this with GitLab, they are they take openness to a whole new level. I mean, just go and take a look online at their company handbook, <laughs> right? It's incredible yes, what they do. It's all in there. In fact, when everybody said, oh, no, we're, we need to be home and working from home, the very best resource was the GitLab handbook because it right. did it all. It was like, oh, here's how you do communications and here's how you manage uh, video calls and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. an amazing thing. And so, so I have, and, and then they, they think about international hires and how do you, how do you, where does equity fall and where does cash fall and how, I mean, the, all those things turn out to be very complicated. Um, and so now companies are saying, oh, we're not going to have offices or we're certainly not going to have offices for a while. Then their employees are saying, well, wow, if you're not going to have an office, I can go back and live in Iowa where I grew up. I can go, my grandkid, the grandkids of my parents can live near them in ways that wasn't really possible before. And that's a really exciting opportunity for lots of employees, but it just changes everything, right? It just changes how you have to think about supporting them, but how did, how did, how do company meetings work and what are time zones and what are, you know, it's just. I, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I mean, just, just the psychological impact. I mean, obviously people have talked about how COVID has had um, from a mental health perspective, it's, it's been pretty detrimental for a lot of people, but <clears throat> I think there's also been, I mean, I'm going to speak personally in this, you know, as listeners of this show will know, you know, my wife is the COO at Git, at GitHub and, you know, mm -hmm. she's normally at the office four days of the week in San Francisco, I work for my home office at home. Uh, and we're just spending a lot more time as a family together. We're cooking together. And and it's been great in that regard. Have you, what's been your take on the uh, kind of the psychological element of this? Because it seems like a double-edged sword in, in, in that some people have been very adversely affected. But I think in a lot of people I've spoken to have said, it's actually been kind of nice in some ways to spend some time with the people I love the most. Yeah, I think it's, The problem here is that you and I have a have a very lucky existence. You're not kidding. <laughs> right? We have really good high speed internet. <laughs> and, right. and, and you and I, in fact, have redundant high speed internet on <laughs> that's yeah. Right? That's insane. We have space so that we can have this conversation uninterrupted. 
We have the capacity then to go into another room and catch up with our loved ones who also have space and capacity for, you know, to do the things they need. I have one company where the CEO reported to me that one of his employees lived in a home, and when I say a home, an apartment with seven other adults, six of whom had lost their jobs. Oh, Yikes. Right. So that's a very, very different world. So I think that we need to think about like that when you think about the tech world, it's actually in many ways uh, liberating. It does change things. You and I have a similar experience, which is we really are lucky to be able to. And I just had this right before I came to to have this conversation with you. I actually had to run uh, and restart the internet uh, and catch up with my wife and and uh, right. and fix something on her computer and grab a snack. And then it's like, oh, and then I'm back on with you. And I said, oh yeah, I'll be done at three. And then. You know, then we'll decide, oh, do we go walk the dog or whatever? That's very different than our old life. And it's yeah. amazing, right? But uh, so I think for for some of us, it's been amazing. But there other, the other thing that's true is so my my brother is an incredible introvert. He's, he's, right. he's perfectly happy to do his job. And that involves engaging with other humans. And he does a good Are you job. sure he's your brother? I know. <laughs> we, have we had a, D, a DNA test on this? <laughs> Well, maybe I got all the extroverts. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it's evenly distributed, then, uh, then I got it all and he doesn't have it. But so for him, gosh, the ability to just sit at home and work is such a gift. He's so happy. And <laughs> right. meanwhile, you and I, are we can do what we need to do. But the idea that you don't get to sit down and catch up with humans over a pizza Actually, kind of, I I obviously love that, and I'm and I and it is disappointing to not get to have that. I'm I'm like a notorious hugger. Like I just want to hug people, and it's very hard to hug people in Zoom. Uh, although I try, you know, I try. <laughs> yeah, hey, give it a go, right? You know, <laughs> live the life that you want to live. You know, yeah. it's. Uh, yeah. I it, I think you touched on something interesting as well, that because uh, one thing that I often worry about especially living here in the Bay Area. You know, I come from, um, you know, my background as a kid is, you know, very kind of like very working class living in Northern England and then kind of going to university and then moving to the U.S., you know, 11 years ago. And now I'm, I'm surrounded by um, great weather and great food and talking to really interesting people and uh, not having to worry so much about money and things like that. And I sometimes worry, I think this is part of the working class background of, of disappearing into that lens and not being able to see outside of it. I think what you're, what you're saying there, David, is everyone's looking at the world through a different lens based upon their experience, especially when it comes to COVID-19. Um, yeah. And I'd say, especially in Silicon Valley where it is such a, there is such a subculture here. Um, how have you in your career, cause you've been doing this a long time. How have you stayed focused on getting that balance? Because one of the things I, you know, when I first met you at the lobby, one of the things I admired about your approach uh, and continue to admire about your approach is that you're a very down to earth, very real person. You know, you don't fall into this kind of caricature of of a Silicon Valley VC, and and that's great. But I imagine that that requires a certain level of confidence in in being different and in challenging the norms and in in looking at, at the world through a different lens. How have you focused on that? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think some of it is just people are kind of who they are. Uh, I, I guess you there is a real temptation to get, you know, to kind of believe the the hype of of a Silicon Valley and particularly over time. Um, you know, I, I, you talk about the lobby conference. This is the this is the um, this is the thirteenth year of the lobby. So we've been doing it for a bunch of years, and in year one of the lobby, uh, there were 150 amazing people who came to the conference, none of whom was was hugely wealthy. You know, there were people were perfectly well off, but there was not. It was none of this like the mythology of Silicon Valley. Uh, Thirteen years later, seven of those 150 is a billionaire. Wow, is that insane? That's crazy. Yeah. Right. So, um... you know, you know, it's kind of interesting because when I first went, um, and let me provide a bit of backstory here for those people who are unfamiliar with the lobby. So this is, you know, I've only ever been to. There's a, a few different types of lobby event, but I've only been to the lobby enterprise event, and it's basically a collection of there's VCs, there's founders, there's a whole group of people. Uh, it takes place in Hawaii, and people get together, and there is some kind of group activities, but there's a lot of these, of these kind of impromptu. Uh, conversations, right? People sitting on beanbags and having conversations about, for example, how you manage your budget and how you work with your assistant and just the kind of typical kind of conversations that, that will take place in, in building and running businesses. And if I'm being honest with you, before I came out, I was, I had a very cynical view of the event. I was thinking, okay, this is just gonna be a bunch of VC assholes getting, getting together and basically patting each other on the back. And it was the complete opposite of that. In fact, Eric and I walked away from the event thinking, it's incredible that you can get this, this level of interesting, insightful, and in many ways, of, co- of course, accomplished people together. And there is such a lack of ego. I mean, there's always a little bit at every event. Yeah. But how, yeah. Have, you, how have you gone about doing that? Because that, I would never have guessed that that was frankly possible in many ways, that you were always going to have, especially with that group of people, you'd imagine that it's going to be people really vying for status and trying to be king of the hill. And there isn't any of that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's what's amazing is the little things that that make that work. And and one of the things that I just that that I do that it mostly entertains me, but I think has a material impact is that I appear in costume. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say the first time I ever saw you with the exception of the pre-drinks, the, the the pre-event kind of drinks reception, was when you ran out and people were having breakfast. And there was like, it was the year when it was about education and it was like the lobby school. And you came out in this like m- big round mascot out- outfit. You looked like a donut when you came out. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, this is a little different to what I was <laughs> expecting. <laughs> but that's exactly it, right? Uh and the first year of the lobby, it wasn't like that was by design. But what happened was <laughs> the first year of the lobby, I had this event. It was in Hawaii. And it was – and I just – I there was this TV show as I was growing up called Fantasy Island, which was like right. you, when you – the people would come to Fantasy Island to experience their dreams, although it turned out that it was actually your nightmare. But <laughs> – uh, but I just sort of thought that this was funny, that this was Fantasy Island. And uh, as you know – uh, having met me, I'm I'm quite a small individual. I'm f- a five foot four. Not and especially tall. No, I wouldn't say. <laughs> Dangerous. And, 
And there's a character in Fantasy Island who was actually a little person uh, played played by Hervé Velichez, who right. was kind of this main character. And I thought, like, I am I am Hervé Velichez of the of the lobby. <laughs> I'm going to welcome everybody as you know, like this is Fantasy Island. So I got my tallest friend to dress up with me. He wore a white tuxedo. I wore a white tuxedo and I came out and I said, you know, welcome to Fantasy Island as a, just a nod to many of our childhoods and (laughs) an idea that like, look at, I know that this is a conference, quote unquote, business conference sitting here in Hawaii. And we all know that that is a hard thing to justify. So let's acknowledge it. And this, but it's going to be fun and we're going to be honest. And, and I've always said like, the most interesting conversations are the ones when you tell the truth and the fact that we got people to get in that mindset to say, Oh, I'm going to actually acknowledge things that didn't work. And one of the very first conversations in some ways I give, um, uh, Mike Marquez credit for this. Cause I'm pretty sure it was Marquez who proposed mm. a conversation that was M and a deals that were, that didn't work. Uh-huh. It was basically, he was at the time, I think, running M&A for Yahoo. If not, he had just stopped doing it. And, right. and there was a crowd of 25 people sitting around talking about all the ways that their acquisitions of companies or their companies being acquired had been just a mess. And it was, and it was a, so much more interesting than if it had been great M&A deals, like great yeah. M&A deals. What do you learn from that? Well, but, I love that as well, because I imagine people probably showed up to that session because they're like, I want to see the bloodbath. Yeah. And, and it actually ends up being a really insightful discussion about things that you could learn that from other people where it went wrong, right? Yeah. And that's the goal, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to, so, and some of it is, so, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that the people who show up, you know, are of the, are of the mindset that they want to be collaborative, human focused individuals, and that's that's and we've gotten lucky a lot, uh, but that's worked really well. Like you know, I'll tell you, in the first year of Lobby Enterprise, I was a little worried. So we've been doing this consumer focused lobby for a number of years, and the consumer people were naturally kind of uh, effervescent and they, you know, they would talk about whatever. And, uh, and so there was some, some question like, well, when we get people who are coming out of infrastructure and SaaS and payments, will they, you know, approach this with the same, you know, the same kind of human, uh, approach. And the first couple of lobbies, I would have conversations and, and my conversations almost always are about family. Like it just always, it's, I just come in and it's like, Oh, how are you? And you know, where, where did, where do you live? And Oh, your kids are in my kid's school or, Oh, your kids are, that's interesting. You know, I just want to know about your family. I want to know about your relationship with your spouse. I want to know, I want to know how you met. I like, these are the things that are interesting to me. And I will say the first couple of years of, of lobby enterprise, people had been coming in with this expectation of this as a business conference around enterprise software. And they'd say like about, yeah, but about that relationship with IBM. And I'd be like, no, no, no. <laughs> I know that you have two kids in the Palo Alto schools. How are they? <laughs> I think that's so important as well because uh I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago about this. Um you know, when I uh 
like you, David, you know, throughout the course of my career, I just like meeting people and I like learning about them. And one thing that kind of is a bugbear of mine is it irritates me when someone, when you meet someone for the first time, let's say somebody's introduced to you and it's obvious that the conversation is what can they get out of you? And um, I'll always remember going to uh, another VC underscore. um, We're having like a wine thing in in San Francisco and I've done a bit of work with underscore and, and I was, uh, I got chatting to this guy and he's English. He lives in San Francisco. He's been in San Francisco for 20 years. And we spent at least an hour, an hour and a half, just talking about our family and our kids and, you know, a little bit about football. And then two months later, he reaches out and he says, I've just started as a CEO for a company and, uh, you know, we need to build a community. And we started, and now we started a business relationship. And to me, that's what networking is all about, right? It's when you get to know the person and the business can often flow after that. And that's one of the things I loved about the lobby because I think if it was just the fun stuff, like I'll always remember the first, that, that first year that I went, you guys organized... <laughs> Uh, for some school buses to pick the attendees up and then take us to like this, like this dance. Right. And I was sat in this bus and we were in this bus for a while and people were noticing that they kept seeing the same landmarks and <laughs> this bus was just riding around in circles, given the illusion that we were going somewhere. And then we ended up back at the hotel and you could see this, like people just gradually figuring out. And I've told that story to so many people and that's fun, but I love the fact that I can then follow up with that and then say, but I had like some really insightful, open discussions about running a business and working with clients and, and all the rest of it. It's, it, I think you need one with, if you don't have both of them, right? It doesn't work. The formula doesn't work, right? That has always been the theory is like, look at, I just think business is people first. It, yep. Great startups are created by by amazing humans. And yeah. so of course it's important to understand hiring and distributed teams and mm. is it you know and the the current state of kubernetes and whatever <laughs> but um but if you start there you know who cares you don't you you get you might get information but you will not build relationships and yeah. the lobby is about is about relationships it's not about information even though you'll get way more interesting information in the as a byproduct of those relationships and that's the goal yeah. Have you ever had many people who've been who kind of don't get that that vibe where they've showed up and and they've they've be, they've been too uh, either salesy or they're constantly pitching people or they just haven't kind of entered into the spirit? Very few. Because uh, and luckily because you know the culture's set pretty quickly. Again, you can't I can't run out as a, you know, high school mascot. <laughs> <laughs> and then have you think like Oh my God. Uh, I'm so important. I did. I will say this. The first year of lobby enterprise, uh, we had a, b- a bunch of people register, great people register. And then we sent out the pr- a pre-lobby mailing. And the, every year before the m- lobby, you get something that just shows you who's coming, but it also tells you about them, right? It's not just, mm-hmm. oh, David Hornick's a general partner at August Capital. It's like, oh, here are some family photos from vacation. Oh, here is... Yeah. Um, you know, here's a video tour of my office or whatever. And so uh, we had one individual who had registered for the lobby and he emailed and said, I just think I'm too senior for this group. Oh, look at me. <laughs> I mean, and the thing that's amazing to me, particularly in retrospect, right? Um, at that conference were 
the founders of Atlassian, the founders right. of Datadog, the founders of Fastly, and and the, you know, like these are wildly accomplished people. But this particular <laughs> person was a was a public company CEO, and he just didn't see enough public company CEOs to satisfy his ego. That is that is unbelievable. It it reminds me of uh, a guy who um, obviously shall remain nameless. On on his about page on his website, the first sentence in his bio says, "Like his name is an icon." <laughs> he, he obviously writes. <laughs> and what I don't get about that is, is there not some kind of gag reflex that naturally happens when you're typing that in? Like how is how is. Which bit of your brain is missing to not detect that? I, I don't get it. I don't get I, it. I had someone pitch me once, and he literally said, um, Steve Jobs was not only a business genius, but he was a design genius. And I can think of no one in Silicon Valley other than myself who meets those same criteria. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Oh God. Look at and that. Had, well, I, this was actually in some ways my favorite thing. We have, we have referenced this so many times in my partnership. Someone was pitching their business and one of the slides quoted themselves. It was like, <laughs> they, they quoted themselves. Yeah. It was like August I've capital met. is an incredible venture fund that supports the very best entrepreneurs. <laughs> David Hornick. <laughs> that is that is incredible. Have you seen the relationship with ego change a lot in your career? Because uh, you know, we, we often, well, let me back up for a moment. Um, I don't want to get into politics because everybody's talking about politics. But one of the things I often ask Americans is, has the political climate changed over the years? Because you know, I've been here for, like I say, 11 years, uh, and I've seen it change somewhat. Um, and a lot of Americans will say it's always been this divisive or it's even more divisive than it was. Uh, so I'm always interested in kind of the long-term views and when you kind of take a step back and look at how things have adjusted. Um, has that relationship with ego shifted uh, much? Are people more egotistical or less or do you think it hasn't changed much at all? I think in some ways, you know, wealth and success and you know, opportunity can breed the wrong information, <laughs> right? Um, and so we've, we, have, we have lived through or we are living through this incredible market that has created an, a, an incredible, immense amount of wealth, an immense amount of, you know, quote unquote success. And, and some people actually are successful despite themselves, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> and so they take away the wrong message. You know, they take away the uh, – and so I think that in down cycles, it is better. And the reason it is better is that entrepreneurs in down cycles are building companies because they really feel they have no alternative. Right. Mm. They're doing it because it is what they do. I'm an entrepreneur. I could I can't go do something else. Whereas in up cycles, there are all sorts of people who graduate from college or migrate to the to the startup world because they think it's a good way to make money. It is not. 
It's a terrible <laughs> way to make money, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, on a risk-adjusted basis, it's a great way to lose money. But, <laughs> right. But because you are surrounded by the mythology, and I, you know, I just supported it with this, oh, there's so many billionaires or whatever, this mm. mythology that you could be the master of the universe, the mis- the you know, the female, what's the female non-gendered equivalent of master I, of the universe? Uh, She-Ra? I don't know. <laughs> my, my apologies. <laughs> I, 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 the, the king, the, the, I don't know, that you, that you could truly uh, conquer the planet, uh, but that conquering the planet is really about look at me and my wealth and fancy cars and fancy planes and the ability yeah. to put my name on things. And, and I just, I think that is sort of distasteful and really does a disservice to what's yeah. really amazing about entrepreneurship. What's amazing. I mean, what I love about the lobby and what I love, what I love about the people who come to the lobby is that by and large, what excites them is this capacity to make something that changes the planet. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't when I funded uh, the three founders of Splunk, they weren't I mean, uh, they've been entrepreneurs for a long time, but I don't think that they said, gee, we're going to build this search engine for log files because, man, is that going to make us rich? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) They said, you know, it's been getting so hard to debug systems. And wouldn't it be amazing if you could search your log files the same way we search everything else on, on Google. Yeah. And to my mind, I was like, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, That'd be amazing. Right now, obviously, you know, fast forward, that was, I funded that company in 2004. Right. So fast forward 16 years later, Big data is is profoundly important and the capacity to understand it is profoundly important. And so they did change the planet, but they yeah. changed it in many ways. You know, they techno- technologically, it isn't about the money. It isn't about the wealth, right? I mean, founders built something that had a huge impact. And that's super exciting to me. That's what motivates me. And then that's what motivates me trying to figure out who to invite to the lobby. Do you think that do you think that um one element of this is because I agree with you that <clears throat> when you look at people and they're clearly they're excited about the problem they're excited about having an impact they're excited about building something new and 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 growing their own expertise and their own skills as well that to me is the right kind of balance for when people do that but then they have the large exit and they do very well for themselves and you know the, they're multimillionaires um it reminds me of the the documentary about Warren Buffett. And one of the things that he said was his wife at the time before she passed away was constantly pressuring him to donate a chunk of money towards, you know, good causes. Um, and he says very openly in the documentary, at that point, it wasn't about the money. It was about the high score. It was about that number. I just wanted to get the number up. Um, and she, it took too long for him to realize that, um, you know, she she pulled him back and said, "It's look, the, the number's important, but think about the impact that our wealth can can provide." Do you think that when people become successful, it then becomes about the number, and they lose a little bit of themselves in that regard? For sure, with some people, right? I I, I had a conversation once. I was made a general partner in my firm, and it was sort of announced, and mm. and I got all these 
calls and emails and introductions to private wealth managers. Oh. Now, I try not to be and speak negatively of anyone, but I have to say I found <laughs> the entire universe of private wealth management to be um, not people oriented. <laughs> how, um, how very uh, diplomatic of you. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a, a, a private wealth manager, I think from Goldman Sachs, who I foolishly, because he was a friend of a friend, said, I'd be happy to get together. Right. And this person said to me, you know, congratulations, and Splunk's doing great, and blah, blah, blah. And ordinarily, we won't manage money for people who don't have a lot, but we, but we would love to start the relationship sooner. And so what, you know, when, let us know when we could be helpful. And right. I said to this individual, wow, that's so nice of you. Um, <laughs> I, I said, how much money do you need from me? What is the minimum? Like, what do you want me to give yeah, you? What are we looking at? Yeah. To, you know, so you can do me a favor and start managing my money. <laughs> and he said, well, I, you know, I think that we would, we could get started with $10 million. <laughs> okay. $10 million. And I said, I said, oh, okay, great. I'm never going to have $10 million. And he, and he said, oh, David, don't be ridiculous. You know, you're really doing great stuff, whatever. And I said, I think you're confused. I didn't say I wasn't going to make $10 million. I said I wasn't going to have $10 million because yeah. if I had $10 million, I'd give it away. Like that is what I will do. So no, there won't be a time when I have amassed $10 million to hand you so you can turn it into more money because that's stupid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, he, yeah. he was so mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that that for him must have just been, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> why does he, why doesn't he want to collect as much possible cash as possible? You know, it's, uh, I've often had this, this view of, you know, people get really wound up about having a certain amount of money. And my view is there's only so much of it you're going to ever spend. Right. And then there's only so much of it you want to leave to your kids and not yeah. leave it to your kids in a way where they're going to, you, you know, and even then that's going to be, in a trust and you're going to want to control that. So they don't become, you know, socialites, shall we say? Yeah. Um, so at that point, it's just, it's just money that's sitting there. And to me, I, I, I've never been particularly bothered about, Oh, I need to make, you know, $50 million or anything along, along those lines. As long as you can have a comfortable life, you can take care of your friends and your family. You can take care of your kids, put the rest of it into good causes. My kind of take. But my, one of my partners made a comment that I thought was, Quite, it was quite an interesting observation because he he has expressed uh, confusion in the past. He said, "Like David, I have, don't know anyone who works as many hours as you do. Like you, mm. which is true. Like I just, I mean, I started out as an attorney. I'm, I'm well trained right. and working hard. But <laughs> he said, like you, you work all these hours, and then you make money and give it away." why are you doing it? Like, what's the point? If you know, and I was like, well, what do you mean? That is the point. And he's like, well, no, I work hard so that I can take that money so I can have the money. And right. so he then came to me, you know, this is a number of months ago. And he said, I, I finally have figured out the difference between the two of us. And I said, Oh, that's interesting. He said, I think of money as a utility. I think of it as utilitarian. It, I can trade it for, a Porsche. I can trade, you know, I can do X, Y, and Z with it. He said, right, you, right. you use money 
like a social lubricant. Right. <laughs> he said, you use money to support the things you want to exist, to support the people you want to exist, you know, and he's right. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I invest in Broadway shows. Right. Now, if you want to make money, you don't invest in Broadway. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a money-making. That's not a quick scene. If you had invested in Hamilton, yes, you made a lot of money. But by, by and large, investing in Broadway is not a way to make money. But these, but I love Broadway, and I love these shows. And in particular, I invest in shows that I think have a, a, a powerful social impact that's valuable. Hmm. And I lose my money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the most recent season, uh, I invested in a show um, called Slave Play, which is a fascinating play and, right. uh, by a very, very important up and coming uh, young African-American playwright. playwright. Hmm. And it seemed extremely clear to me that we, we would lose all of our money. And then What's more, then Jeremy, who was the playwright, then insisted that we give away a lot of tickets and that we don't price the tickets, you know, to make money. And that was great. (laughs) I just can't tell you. (laughs) I just thought that was such a great thing. I invested in a show that was um, a a remake of a Broadway show called Spring Awakening with the Deaf West Theater. And Deaf West is this theater company where – their every part is played by a signing, someone who does sign language huh. actor, and then someone who is singing and speaking. And this show was so amazing. I mean, it just and at the end, and the other, and the thing that was amazing about it, it's a beautiful show. If you know Spring Awakening, it's just incredibly powerful. The music is stunning. Um, but at the end of the performance of this show on Broadway, two hundred people in the audience stood up and waved their hands because they were deaf and they were experiencing a Broadway show like a, a, like a hearing person for the first time. That's incredible. And I cried every time. <laughs> is, that is on, you just, the hairs in the back of my neck are standing on end right now. What a great story. It was amazing. That's and, incredible. And I made five cents on the dollar. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't part of the pleasure here, uh, just seeing the impact, right? Just seeing the impact on the people involved in the play. And, and it's in the same way that when you make a contribution to a charity or a good cause, or you can help somebody else out in some way, isn't, I think half the pleasure here is just seeing that very real impact. Because sure, you can put the money in the market and you can have your financial, you know, your, your money manager take care of that, but you don't see the, the, the human impact there. Totally. That's no, huge, like yeah. I said, my my partner totally got it right. He said, "You think of you think of money as a, as right, a right. social element, not as an economic element." And I hope I always do because I think that that's I just that's how I want to live my life. I don't think you're going to change anytime soon, David. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's happening. I think I think that ship may have sailed. Um, Fully so, I'm I'm kind of glad that you brought up the um the the kind of the social impact element because um, obviously there's been a lot of a lot of discussion recently um, about about diversity and inclusion and especially systematic racism um, and I think we're having a really interesting conversation of course just in our culture about 
what is the role that we play in supporting the reduction of that systematic racism and just playing a you know a, a role in in making a fairer more equitable world for everybody uh, in silicon valley and 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 entrepreneurs are a big chunk of potential impact there what do you think should be happening right now because uh, obviously i think a lot of companies a lot of vcs are uh, uh, they're really focused on the issue and they're trying to do the best that they can. But what do you think is missing today from from that that story? I, mean, I, I do think it's a resource question. I think that, you know, resources need to be focused on uh, providing opportunity because it's, you know, it's an up and down the pipeline. Can We can do better. And it is not an answer to say, oh, this is a pipeline problem. I just don't have enough candidates. So I tried. That's not an answer. The answer is then what do you do when you're building a business? You focus on top of funnel, right? I, I don't have enough leads, then get more leads. Well, in this instance, if the answer is there aren't enough uh, entrepreneurs of color, there aren't enough venture investors of color because we feel like the the opportunities weren't there, then create the opportunities. And and I think that requires intentionality, and I think it requires an an, an, an acknowledgement that there is this inherent um, bias. I I uh, I very firmly remember a moment in time when it became perfectly clear uh, to me that uh, that I needed to be more intentional. I needed to be more thoughtful. I was having a meeting. I meet with students all the time. I sit down with students and I describe the venture business and entrepreneurship. And, and I had a group of students, they were in, in my conference room. I was talking about entrepreneurship and venture capital. And one of them asked, you know, what do you look for in an entrepreneur? And I said, you know, venture capitalists are ultimately narcissists, which is, true. <laughs> uh, and so what, what venture capitalists are looking for is someone. Now, the way I had formulated this, description before was the phrase someone who looks like them right and as i said these were or as i was about to say the words venture capitalists are narcissists and ultimately they're looking to fund someone who looks like them i turned i was scanning my around the the crowd and right. there was a a young african-american man very large african-american man who who could not have looked less like me <laughs> Right. And as I went to say the words, they're looking to fund someone who looks like them. I stared in the eyes of this gentleman and I said, I'm going to tell you the words I was about to say. Right. I was about to say that venture capitalists invest in people who look like them. I, what I meant by that was, you know, I'm looking for someone who went to Stanford and got a degree and yeah. you know is an extrovert and a whatever. I said, like but, profile. but yeah. looking yeah. at your face right now and thinking those words, I realized how pernicious that is. Right, right. And that I will never say those words again. And I will be very, very purposeful about the fact that that is actually discriminatory. Hmm. That ultimately this idea that we invest in people who are like us is actually the problem. It is the thing that is creating this lack of, you know, lack of engagement across broad swaths of the community. And right. so, um, 
I've tried to be more intentional about it. I've tried to be more intentional about it as I as I invest in entrepreneurs and as I meet with companies and as I meet with uh, up and coming people. And I've tried to be more intentional about it in in my lobby conference and in other things that I do. I, I can't say that I've been a dramatic success. I'm in a partnership of white men. I find right. that really ch- troubling. Right. Uh, right, right. I, I, you know, I think we've done a marvelous job of getting very, very thoughtful uh, female executives and uh, to the lobby. Uh, the, the LGBTQ representation at the lobby has always been wonderful. Um, right, right. But people of color are wildly underrepresented at the lobby, and I need to do better. So I just think we just need to say. It is not an answer to say, I tried. That is not a thing. Yeah. No, I agree with you. One of the things I think is is fascinating, but also incredibly complicated about the topic of systematic racism, especially is is you keep weaving it backwards and backwards and backwards, right? So um, when we're talking about, for example, if there's not enough people of color who who can come to the lobby, right? Um, Then why is that? Then it could be that there is not enough opportunity in, in our industry. And why is that? Well, maybe it's because of some educational opportunities weren't present there. And why? And and when you reel that back, it then can go into somebody's family and their upbringing and all kinds of these different elements. And I think it becomes, you get these multiple layers of kind of inheritance, to use a programming term, that I think makes the whole topic very complicated. Do you have any thoughts about how do you, like which part of that chain is the most important place to focus on? Because I think a lot of people talk about like education is really critical is opening up and op- opening opportunities for people to go to college, um, for people to be able to build their skills and their experience and internships and all that kind of stuff, because that can have then the trigger kind of domino effect of, of opening up opportunities later on. But do you have a sense of where in that pipeline, I guess you could say, or when in that process, the most impact could be, be- could be applied? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's biggest impact and then there's biggest impact at scale, right? The- you know, you think about education, it isn't, it, it is unquestionably the case that Stanford's continued focus on getting great first generation students and underrepresented students to come to Stanford is disproportionately valuable to, to folks. It, it, getting a Stanford degree and particularly emerging as a Stanford computer scientist is disproportionately valuable no matter what your background <laughs> and so there is no question that if we can, you know, continue to to get amazing people to to be in these communities that are credibility enhancing, and uh, and that that's valuable to them. But th- but but it's not a scaled answer, right? Of course that's great, and of course we should do that. But how do we do something at scale? And I think one of the biggest problems with entrepreneurship is that. Even though it is, it is a. We pretend that entrepreneurship is this thing that is um, that allows people the opportunity to break out, but that requires you to be willing to willing, able, and in a position to take the kinds of risks that are. And I, as I already said, that will almost assuredly fail. Right? It isn't, <laughs> yeah. You know, right? Entrepreneurship is not a recipe for certain success. Entrepreneurship is an opportunity for possible success. And it is way easier for my children to take that risk, right, than it is for someone who's 
who doesn't comes from a family that doesn't have resources or that hasn't, you know, where it's a, I had this, I was a freshman and advisor at Stanford. I advised, you know, incoming students. I had this really, really wonderful young student who I was advising and he had an opportunity to work for a summer at a, a very promising and exciting startup. And he had the opportunity to go work for Microsoft. And um, this was a, a young Latinx uh, gentleman and his, and when his, and we talked about it and he said he was super excited about the startup. And when his parents had the conversation with him, his parents said, you must go to Microsoft. You may not oh, really? take that risk because you, this is your opportunity. This is the transformative moment. And right. you can't risk that. You can't risk the possibility of transformation when you have the certainty of transformation at Microsoft, right? <laughs> right. That, that was a very telling moment for me because I thought, oh my God, these parents are being so dictatorial and, 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 uh, and, and wrongheaded about this decision. And yet they weren't at all. They just had a very different perspective about how the importance of what what was going to be done here and what opportunity it was providing to their son who had worked so hard to find his way to Stanford, worked so hard at Stanford to be this coveted engineer. And to them, it was like, you've been handed the ticket. Don't trade it in for a lottery ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think one of the things that's interesting here as well is that <clears throat> I've had the impression, I've got the impression that... Um, We've seen a shift in recent years from um, people who are in privileged positions, and I would certainly put both of us into that category, um, having to be aware of, of of diversity and inclusion as something that is something that people need to think about. It's kind of become a, it's a requirement, and I get the impression that as time has gone on and it's, and and the and the topic has been discussed and explored in much more depth, I think people are now less looking at it from i need to think about this to this is something that is not just good but this is something that's helpful like this is something that builds better businesses it creates better innovation it creates better opportunity and one of the things that struck me is that i think a lot of people are nervous about especially privileged people in doing something to support the cause because they're worried about screwing up and one of the things that i've discovered myself as, as an example a couple of months ago um I uh, announced this thing called the Community Access Bootcamp. And the basic idea was I was going to do a whole bunch of free training and mentoring to underrepresented and untapped uh, groups, um, and especially people working in nonprofits and then people who are students as well. And I had 75 students, and we did this over a course of about 10 weeks. And what was really cool about this was, um, first of all, the group was super excited. But secondly, I learned so much more about this topic from doing that. And I thought I had a reasonable sense of the challenges with diversity and inclusion and building this kind of opportunity. And when I completed that boot camp, I realized just how little I knew. And that every time you do something, you learn more about it. And I think that sometimes people forget that you just got to start doing something right and start playing a role in it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there has there have been a lot of studies that say that diverse teams and it's women led teams etc outperform, and yet you have a, a a hierarchy that's led by a bunch of white men who are like ah, I don't know about that 
<laughs> this, doesn't, this doesn't sound like a great idea, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who did this research? <laughs> right. You know, but and so I think that they are, you know, clinging. We are clinging to this idea, like, oh, that's fine research, but is it really true? I need, I need more data. I need more data on that, please. You know. Uh, but as you say, when you dive in and you have these conversations, diversity of thought is incredibly valuable. And yeah. uh, and so it's obvious that that's the case. Uh, it's just that the power structures are busy saying, that's the case, but what about me? Like, you know, of, co- of course that's true, but still, you know, hire my son, hire yep. my daughter, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Unfortunately, I'm going to have to bring this into a, in, into a close. I want to get you out in time. Thank you so much for coming on, David. I think you're just, I, I love your approach. I love your honesty, your transparency, how open you are about this. And I think you're a great example for everything we've just kind of wrapped the show with. So thank you for coming on. And just before you, you head out the door, one final question. What are you excited about uh, just in the next couple of months? Like, or what do you, what, what's kind of getting you juiced up right now before you leave? <laughs> I, you know, it's what I'll tell you what's been amazing. And you, we've talked about this in the beginning that you're sitting in your home and you have it just changes the nature of opportunity. Um, more time with the family, more time, whatever. I, I sit in this home office and I'm surrounded by musical instruments. I started out my life as a musician. I, I have a, a music degree. I'm not a good musician, but I am a, I'm a person who loves music. And so it has been really empowering and energizing to be have 15 or 20 minutes free between things and pick up a bass or pick up my violin or whatever. And, and just gonna play, yeah. play some music, you know, just to like, that's been, that has been a gift. And I don't know that it'll continue when I'm freed. <laughs> <laughs> when you get parole. <laughs> when I get parole. Uh, but I'm, I am grateful for that. I think that that's been, I think that's been, really powerfully lovely uh, in a time of not a lot of loveliness. Yeah, sounds great. Well, thank you, David, and uh, I'll see you soon. Great, great talking to you.